Well, please join with me in prayer. Father, as we have just sung, um, to you all hearts are open. And so we do pray that you would search us, O Lord, and know our hearts. That you would see where there is anxiety, where there is unrighteousness, where there are things that are opposed to you, and that you would lead us in the way everlasting. Even now, would you please lead us in the way you call us to go. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So um, when I was growing up in Massachusetts, our house was right up against a forest in the backyard area, which meant it would be fun for us to kind of go on walks. And as a young kid, I didn't know much be difference between different plants, and so um, they all looked the same to me, and my mom wanted to make sure she helped me to see what plants I should avoid. So, you know, she pointed to, to poison ivy and said, I know these look very similar, but here's the jingle to remember, shiny leaves with three, let them be. And so I could see the difference, and that, that kept me safe. There, there's a value in, in recognizing when there is something that two things look similar and one is bad and one is good, it's important to contrast them. I've, I've heard in Texas that there is a coral snake and then there's a harmless snake. And they both are red and black. The key is that red hits yellow for one snake. So there's another jingle, red on yellow, catch that fellow, red and black, friend of Jack. There's two things that look really similar, but noticing the contrast is important to make sure that you are following what's safe and what's good and that you are getting rid of or, or staying away from what could give you a rash or what could literally kill you. Contrast is important when there are things that look similar to each other. And I, and I was thinking of that when I was looking at our passage this morning. In fact, if we think about the Gospel of Matthew, one thing that, that perhaps we've already begun to notice is that there is a strong emphasis on contrast. That is, even as Matthew seeks to lay out this, this picture, this image of the kingdom of heaven that Jesus is bringing, the community that he's building, as he lays out the blueprints for who this church is supposed to be, there is another theme that's developing of a rival community. The community that's led by the religious leaders, by the Pharisees. And, and what we're meant to see is a contrast because removed far enough, they look very similar to each other. This rival community seeks to be the people of God. This rival community studies the Bible carefully and in some senses seeks to obey it. This rival community honors or, or names at least the God of the Bible, and yet Jesus is very clear that this rival community, though it looks similar at one level, is counterfeit, and we should be aware of it. Which is why we see this theme throughout. You might remember even at the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus is speaking about his community, he also says, don't be like the Pharisees. This is why even as Jesus seems so consistently, gently to care for those who are in, in, in different kinds of sin, he is blunt and absolutely firm when it comes to the Pharisees. And this is why while our book of Matthew in some ways begins with blessings describing the community that Jesus is bringing, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the hunger and thirst for righteousness, as we bring things to an end, right before now, we're in the final section before the cross, we end not with more blessings, but with curses, with woes. 
Even as Jesus identifies what the good community is, he also wants us to understand what the community that is counterfeit is so that we can be aware and we can avoid it. In fact, it is clearly that is the reason for this passage. Perhaps as you were hearing, you're like, what do I do with this? It's important to realize that when Jesus is speaking, he's actually not speaking for the Pharisees' benefits. If we were to back up, we'd see that the conversation between Jesus and the Pharisees end at chapter 22. The Pharisees no longer want to talk to him. They, they're not listening anymore. And so I don't know if you noticed, but at the very beginning of chapter 3, it says, sorry, chapter 23, it says who Jesus is speaking to. It says he's speaking to who? To the crowds, and to the disciples, that is, those who are inquirers of Jesus and those who are followers of Jesus. That means he's speaking to us. Some of us here maybe are inquirers of Jesus. Some of us are followers of Jesus. And it's for our sake that Jesus is saying these things. He is speaking these woes, these tragedies of the Pharisees so that we can recognize what is dangerous and so that we can learn to avoid that trap. And I think we see that perhaps especially clearly if we consider the seventh of these woes. So in verse 25, or sorry, 29, it says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with him in the shedding of the blood of the prophets. So in that day, you know, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Elijah, these were revered figures. I mean, we can almost imagine, like, you know, how Washington, D.C. has the Washington Monument and the Lincoln Memorial. Well, there seems to be these monuments to these great figures. And, and Jesus says, he, you know, the Pharisees are just kind of looking at these and just kind of shaking their heads, like, if only... We were there at the time. Those people at that time, they killed Isaiah, they imprisoned Jeremiah, they persecuted Elijah, but if we had been there, it would have been so much better. And, and Jesus says, you are so blind. Because Jesus knows this is what the Pharisees are about to do. As Jesus has come to them, the one who speaks on God's behalf, they are going to kill him. And he says, I'm going to be sending further prophets to you. I'm going to be sending further wise men, people who are speaking the truth. And do you know what you're going to do? You're going to imprison some. You're going to flog others. You're going to crucify others. You are doing the very same thing that you criticized in your forefathers. And here's why it's important for us to consider. Because he, he is saying to just look at past mistakes and shake our heads is a very dangerous place to be. I mean, isn't that the temptation that we have when we hear story after story about the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and they're so obviously mistaken, and inwardly, we're just like, oh, if only I had been there, I would have done things differently. And Jesus is saying, don't be fooled. The very same trap that the Pharisees fell into is one you can fall into. His point is that what we should be doing as we are considering this failure is to say what we've already said, search us, O Lord, know our hearts, and lead us. Lord, please help us to see where in our hearts we might have those very same tendencies that led these people who were seeking you initially away from you. And so that's the question that we need to be asking. As Jesus is speaking these woes, these tragedies about the Pharisees, he is trying to help us to say, don't go there. 
And I think at the very end of our passage, which really is the very final words Jesus says explicitly about these religious leaders, we are shown the very heart of the failure of the Pharisees. Let me ask you, as we've been considering the Pharisees, or maybe, you know, you've heard different stories, what do you think was the fundamental flaw, the fundamental mistake that the Pharisees made? What our passage tells us, and this was a surprise to me, but what our passage tells us was that their fundamental failure, deeper than anything else, was a failure to accept the love of Jesus. So, so look in these final verses of our passage, in verse 37, where Jesus says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, that, that repetition is, is to express kind of this emotional longing. Jerusalem in this passage, and actually throughout Matthew, represents the religious establishment. It's the religious leaders and those who follow uh, them. That's why it says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. He's speaking to the Pharisees now. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood. Or as the NIV, I think, rightly translated, how often I longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. I've never seen a hen do this before, so I do what you're supposed to do, and I went to YouTube, and there there were. There was a video, and it was really helpful for me to get this image in my mind. It was raining, and there's these five, I mean, they, I don't think I realized how ugly chicks are. I mean, they start off so cute, but these were really ugly, scrawny, no feathers, just kind of huddling, and, and it's, the rain's coming down, and the mother hen just kind of does this. And suddenly the, the chicks get under the wing and they're huddled under it and now the rain is not hitting them and they're safe as the, as the mother is keeping her chicks warm and she is going to be like this until the rain stops. And, and Jesus says, how often when I have seen you, this is what I have longed to do with you. It's striking, right, because it can seem like Jesus sees the Pharisees as his enemies, that, that Jesus hates the Pharisees, but that is not what he's saying at all. It says, again and again, when I have seen you, I, I, I wanted to bring you close to me. I wanted to, to protect you from the storm, from the rain. I wanted to bring salvation to you. I wanted to bring you close. There is this longing Jesus is expressing of love, to love these people but you would not. That's what it says here. How often I have gathered, long, I, would, I would long to have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. The Pharisees' failure is not ultimately about them misinterpreting the Bible at places. The Pharisees' failure was not ultimately just about a kind of judgmentalism or, or pride. Those are clearly sins, but that was not the root. The very heart of this was that they were not willing to accept the love of Jesus. And the question I think we are meant to ask that this passage poses to us is, is that ever true of us? 
Could it be that even as we have, have taken on this faith as our own, as we identify ourselves as, as Christians, that there is a sense that Jesus has his arms open, wanting to bring us in, and we do this because we don't really want it? Now, we might ask, why, why would you even do that, this, this, this love, this compassion, why would the Pharisees resist the love of Jesus? And I think as we look at the woes, the answer ultimately is that for them to experience the love of Jesus, they would have to accept the truth about themselves, truth that they did not want to see. Imagine this image again. We've already spoken of just like this beautiful picture of the love of Jesus, him opening his arms, wanting to welcome in. But you know what's not beautiful in this picture? It's the chicks. I mean, this, this image doesn't speak very flatteringly of us. We're featherless, helpless chicks. That's what Jesus is saying is true of the Pharisees. And, and for the Pharisees to accept these open arms, they would have had to accept that they needed the love of Jesus. They would have had to accept this position of helpless, dependent chicks, as it were. And they couldn't. They wouldn't. If we look at the woes, I think we see we could spend lots of time with them. We don't have that time this morning. So I want to just zero in on two, two ways that this is true. Two things about themselves, lies that they wanted to hold on to that kept them from ever allowing Jesus to draw them in. And the first lie that they wanted to hold on to was that they are important. Important in the world's sense of the term. So when Jesus speaks initially in those opening verses about the Pharisees, he, he speaks on one hand of, of how they are the, the, the preachers. Right? He says they sit in Moses' seat. That is, they're speaking on behalf of, they're preaching the Bible. And, and that means their, their purpose is supposed to be helping people to recognize how great God is. Helping people to recognize how great this promise of the Messiah is so that they can long for Christ. They are meant to help people see the importance of God, but Jesus says that's not what they're doing. What they're doing is instead seeking to magnify their own importance. So, verse 5, they do all their deeds to be seen by others. For they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. If you're wondering, a phylactery was this, is a tiny little scroll that would usually have like one verse. Like, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. That would be a verse that would be recorded on a scroll. And then people would tie it sometimes to their forehead or to their shoulder as this kind of symbolic ongoing reminder of who they are. That the, the, the tassels that God's law asked, required for people in their robes to have tassels in each of the four corners that were blue because the color of the curtain in the temple and the color of the priest's robes were blue, and this was connecting them to that to remind them that they were holy, that they were a people belonging to God. And the Pharisees made them gigantic. Gigantic phylactery on their forehead, gigantic tassels so that they could, it's kind of like a branding kind of thing, an ancient form of branding to show we really care about obedience. Now it's easy to mock, it's also honestly kind of easy to understand that, that even though this is perverted, that, that what they should be using, they shouldn't be using the gospel, shouldn't be using God's word to exalt themselves, they should be using it to exalt God, yet we can kind of understand it because we know 
deep within us, there is this instinct, this longing to be known, to be seen. And it's not hard for us to imagine how people could, could chase after a certain kind of importance like the Pharisees seem to be doing. The thing that's kind of surprising as I've been thinking about it is that it worked. That is, crowds revered these figures. They would get, like the very, whenever people had a dinner, oh, the Rabbi Gamaliel's here. You can sit at the place of honor. When people would speak to them, they would use different titles, Rabbi, Father, whatever, and they would kind of bow their heads. When they were, I mean, they were, whenever they would walk, people would kind of give them space. They were treated as important. It worked. They wanted to make themselves look important, and they did. Which is weird, right? Like, you know, don't you think people could see through that? At least that's what I was thinking until I just realized, I mean, what we're describing here is celebrity culture. And in the American church, we should recognize that. I remember when I was in Australia, one of the things my Australian Christian friend said is, you know, you Christians in America are weird. You keep on using people's names. There's Billy Graham ministry, and there's like every name gets its own ministry. And don't you realize it's kind of strange to have everything about one guy? And they're right, but it's something that does seem to happen a lot. Some, some figures that we revere have never sought celebrity, but others who are Christians have. You know, they have you know, written the best-selling books. They have cultivated a social media following, and it seems like people can flock to them. Thousands upon thousands want to go to conventions to hear this great speaker speak, and, and they kind of almost start having this identity of following this guy, whoever it is. And what's going on there? Like, why, why is it that we get so attracted to, you know, big figures making them bigger and bigger until they crash down in a tragic way? As I've thought about it, I think it actually is the same drive that drives the Pharisees in the first place to want to be in these, these places of importance. We want to feel important. And sometimes I think we feel more important if we are connected to people who are viewed as important. It's a bit like what Nick was talking about a couple of weeks ago, that we're all kind of middle schoolers in the lunchroom. And as we're carrying our tray, we want to be at the cool table. And so if we can sit at the cool table, somehow connected to the cool people, even if they're not nice to us, we don't really care because at least we feel a little bit more important. And meanwhile, there is Jesus at a totally different table. And there's nothing about him that seems apparently cool. And he has a whole bunch of very clearly not cool people sitting at the table with him. And he says, come, join me. And we have this decision. Jesus is actually really quite explicit about it when he says, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but whoever humbles himself will be exalted. There is a different direction that's involved with following Jesus. To, to, to move towards Jesus means letting go of a certain vision of importance. Jesus, you have to humble yourself if you follow me. Part of following Jesus is acknowledging that Jesus is great and we're not. And also means moving in a direction that does not look great by the world's standards. Now, as we draw near to Jesus, we actually find a certain kind of glory and honor that is given that far exceeds what the world sees. We, we ultimately are called children of God, royalty, but in the moments to turn towards Jesus means in our minds, to turn away from importance. 
And the Pharisees didn't want that. They didn't, they didn't want to be scraggly chicks. They wanted to be significant, and their followers wanted to be significant. And the tragedy is what happens as a result. Verse 13, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would gather, who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You travel across sea and lands to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Pursuing importance, other people following this pursuit of importance, all it does is lead to destruction. It is a tragedy. And the question that we are being asked in this is, are we allowing our desire for esteem in the eyes of others? Are we allowing our, our quest for significance, for importance, keeping us? Are we allowing it to keep us from experiencing the love of Jesus that embraces us, but does not tell us that we're important in that way? Well, the second lie that the Pharisees wanted to hold on to was, was a lie that we could speak of in terms of, his, of a kind of independence. So if we were to look at the next woes, we would see kind of two things. We would see there is a focus on rules rather than righteousness and on appearances rather than actual goodness. So it begins with him talking about a number of rules that the Pharisees seem to be really interested in, like, you know, how you should do oaths, whether you do it with the gold of the altar or the altar itself. There are these really mundane rules, and then he moves from these mundane rules to also rules about tithing so that they have an herb garden and they count every ten sprigs of garlic and they make sure one goes to the temple. They're focusing on the rules, and Jesus says, don't you understand that the center of the law is not about that, the center of the law is about justice and mercy and faithfulness. If you're zeroing in on these rules, but you're missing this, do you understand what you're doing? It's like if you've got a cup of water, and you really wanted to make sure you're drinking water well, and you see this tiny little gnat, you just kind of take it out and throw it away, and then you gulp it down, not realizing there's an enormous camel in your cup, and you just swallowed a camel whole. You're focusing on something small when, when righteousness, not just rules, is what should matter to you. And then he moves in the, the next two woes to focusing on appearances rather than actual goodness. So appearances, um, imagine if, you know, at a family dinner, everyone's having bowls of chili, and then whoever's on cleanup decides they're going to have a shortcut. And so what they do is they, they just wash the outside of the bowl, and they turn it upside down, leave it on the counter looking like it's ready to dry, and saying, all done, never having touched the inside of the bowl. He says, Pharisees, that's what you're doing. You're, you're trying to make yourself look good on the outside, but never addressing what's on the inside. Another illustration he uses, before Passover, wherever the tombs were, people would, would cover it with kind of a whitewash so that people would know where tombs are so that they wouldn't make themselves unclean. They would walk around it. So it looks kind of pretty, but it's dead stuff that's being covered. And, and Jesus says, that's you. You're making yourself look great on the outside, but inside there is death. There is selfishness. There's all these things that you're not willing to address. You focus on rules, you focus on appearances, but the substance of true righteousness, true change, you are not doing. Now, why is that? We're doing the Pharisees a disservice and not being 
reasonable if we just assume they don't care about anything that has to do with goodness, that all they really care about is just looking good. No, these are people who, who truly would say, I, I long for righteousness, but, but here's the thing. It's so, so much easier to focus on rules and appearances than to really focus on the other things because the rules and appearances you can control. When I was a youth pastor, um, when I would be talking with people who were trying to kind of be in a dating relationship, I can't think of a time where, like, a guy coming to me looking for advice, asking, you know, could you tell me what does it look like to honor my girlfriend, to really esteem her well, to make sure I'm, I'm helping point her to Christ? That wasn't the question. You know what the question is? How far is too far? in terms of a physical relationship. They wanted to know the rule, because a rule is something you can do. Righteousness, that's much harder. When I'm cleaning up, if I'm on you know, responsibility for the kitchen, if I'm tired, my temptation is not to think, what does it look like for me to really serve my family well in terms of making this as clean as possible? My temptation is to figure out what it looks like to make it look clean without really dealing with all the things that I need to, because appearances are much easier than reality. We know this right? It's much easier for me to figure out how to tithe one-tenth of my income to the sense than it is for me to figure out what it looks like to offer my body as a living sacrifice, which is where righteousness is. It's much easier for us to manage our reputation, especially if we don't let people get too close to us, rather than actually being changed and, and growing in godliness. And the Pharisees wanted to focus on the first because that's something they could do. They can do the rules. They can do the appearances. And as long as that's all they're focusing on, they can feel like they're generally doing okay. And that's why we might focus on those things. As long as we just focus on these surface things, we don't feel like necessarily we need help. And that means we're not aware of how deeply we need Jesus. There's a quote that has stuck with me uh, repeatedly um, from Flannery O'Connor in one of her stories that talked about there was already a deep, black, wordless conviction in him that the way to avoid Jesus was to avoid sin. And there's a sense that if we can feel independent, if we can just focus on the rules, if we can just focus on, on the externals, we we won't ever have to acknowledge just how helpless we are. We can maintain this veneer of independence even within our own minds. But if we actually look at what true righteousness is, true mercy, if we actually look within ourselves and are honest, we realize, I can't do this. I can't grow in the way. I can't make myself clean. Only as we do that are we able to say to Jesus, I need your help. See, it's that quest for independence by only focusing on externals that allows us to keep Jesus' love at arm's length. And that's the failure of the Pharisees. They held on to a lie, trying to hold on to the sense of importance, the sense of independence, and in doing so, they kept themselves from ever accepting the love of Jesus. And the question we should be asking is, is this ever true of us? Let me, as I'm closing, just ask you to think about this statement. God forgives you. 
You know, that, those words were, they, they incensed the Pharisees, even as they were joy to people like Matthew. And it wasn't just because they were worried about blasphemy. It's because for them to hear those words and accept them would have meant they would have had to accept something about themselves, that they need forgiveness, that they need love, that they need, like chicks, to be welcomed under the arms of Jesus. When you hear the words, God forgives you, does that give you joy or does that mean very little to you? That may well be a good indicator of where you're at in this. Because what, with this passage, what, what I want us to be left with is just an awareness of something absolutely, utterly extraordinary. I, I came across a tweet not that long ago from the Atheist Forum, um, and, and here's what its attempt at mockery was. You know, Christianity, a definition. Belief that one God created a universe 14 billion years old, 93 billion light years in diameter, consisting of over 200 billion galaxies, each containing an average of 200 billion stars, only to have a personal relationship with you. LOL. Yeah. Like, that's, that's what's so extraordinary. And what's even more extraordinary is that this God in Jesus comes to us and says, what I long to do is to open my arms. And I long for you to come near and to experience my protection, my compassion, my care for you. And the only thing that stands in the way of this is you. Jesus says, come to me. Recognize that your importance is found in me. Come to me and say, I can't do this. I need your help, and I will help you. Come to me, Jesus says, and experience my love. And so I'd like to invite us even now, wherever we are at in following Jesus, to come to Jesus, to come to the one who, though he rules over the universe, loves you. And let's spend some time in confession and prayer, and then I'll lead us in prayer in a couple minutes' time.